do you agree that you know it's time that we all wake up and take responsibility even for our ancestors that did not know any better been waiting patiently to have this kind of conversation <laughs> Hey, this is Wake Up With KC, and today I have a very special guest joining us today, and I am always humbled and honored to meet someone that has served our country, and Michael Myers joins us today, and he shares with us some interesting aspects of serving our country. Welcome, Michael. Hi, how are you? I am I am very humbled right now because I have someone that has served our country and has earned a purple heart. Yeah. And that's... You served our country. It was in Vietnam. And I'm fascinated by, you know, I was a kid. I was like born in 68. Vietnam started from 1965 and i do think it ended in 1973 74 75 75 okay so and that's share started. with us your your story like when did it begin for you why did you want to serve and marine corps right no, i was army army okay yeah i was uh 17 years old, my father was a career naval officer for 31 years. And I, my 17-year-old girlfriend became pregnant. And I decided at a very young age that I wanted to be a father to my children. So my history was laid out for me. I mean, uh, the history of my family all the way back to the beginning is the one uh, a soldier after another soldier, airman. I had an uncle that was a B-17 pilot in Europe for uh, during the war. I had another uncle that was at Normandy, Battle of the Ball, Janzio. My father was at Iwo Jima, Leyte Gulf, and Okinawa. I had a great-grandfather that was at Gettysburg, two of them, as a matter of fact. So I was just fulfilling my destiny. So I was 17, and we had crossed the ocean, both oceans, twice. And I always got seasick. So my father, being the old salt naval officer he was, uh, explained to me how in nine years, if I worked really hard, I could be a chief. And I just thought about it. I mean, I'd go three or four days on those oceans, out in the middle of those oceans with those 40-foot land swells. And I was sick as a dog most of the trip. And I knew that wasn't for me. So I wanted to be on the ground. So I enlisted to join the Army when I was 17 years old, the day after I got married. And then I uh, progressed from there, and two, three, almost three years later, I was selected to become an officer. I went through OCS at Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, went through uh, Ranger leadership training and night patrol training with the Rangers. And then I went through jungle training with the Special Forces in Panama. And then I went to Vietnam, and I joined my rifle platoon under fire in 1968, of all things, the year you were born. I was 21 years old, 21 and 22 when I was in the war. 
And the guys, I still, my email is still LT, MSM, my initials. Uh, and I go by LT because it was an honor for me that the guys, the men would call me LT, which was meant like I was, they, some of them would call me sir and lieutenant, but it was like uh, I was uh, their big brother rather than their lieutenant. You know, when they called me LT, it was a, like a term of endearment. So I still hang on to it. I still use it. So that was how I got my beginning in the Army. So it was a shoot. And then I went to Vietnam, and it was like shoot them up, bang, bang for a year. The northernmost area in, v in South Vietnam had a lot of business in Laos. I did a lot of patrols out there. And um, those two years, it was the bloodiest years of the war. And my unit was the AmeriCal Division, which was uh, – the when when we retired our colors, it was the unit that saw most day-to-day -day action than any other unit in the war. So we saw an average of three to five bloody battles, maybe up to seven or eight a month. Uh, where where uh, here's a statistic that you're probably not familiar with, and your listeners are probably not familiar with that the statistic statistically speaking, the big war, the war we won with all the parades and everything, and the the guys that won their war, World War II, the average infantry soldier, the combat infantry soldier in World War II saw an average of just over 40 days of actual fighting combat. Now, some of those battles were horrible, uh, granted. I, would, I mean, I wouldn't want to be there. And the, But to compare that to the uh, Vietnam soldier, the young Vietnam soldier, in one year, saw so an average of over 200 days of actual fighting combat. So, and it was bloody and it was hot and it was wet and it was jungle. And it was, it was probably the most horrible thing you could ever imagine. And the difference is today, I, I have a, I have bittersweet feelings and I, and I thank our soldiers and Marines and sailors uh, for serving today, and I, I, I mean, I love them for it. I always tell them, carry that flag high. I still get salutes when I go into the bases and stuff, which to me it gives me a lot of uh, pride. Remember that to realize that the respect is still there. You know, they appreciate us. But I have bittersweet feelings about it because everybody that gets near uniform now is considered a hero, and I knew a lot of young heroes, real heroes. And I write about them in my writing. But when I got back from the war, uh, I had a, 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 a an overnighter in San Francisco. I, I had a turnaround flight in San Francisco. So I, I was there for a night. So I took the first thing when I came out of the airport, this was 1969, middle of 1969. I saw hundreds of demonstrators across the street in the park. As we, as I was driving by, and they had placards and signs and and uh, baby killers, murderers, uh, spit at us. They didn't physically spit at me, but I, I know that they would spit at uh, soldiers. And just the fact that they were there, and I took a picture of it. Yeah, I'll never forget that first thing I saw. And the guys, when I was in the field, they'd they, whenever one of them was leaving, they'd always say, "Don't well, don't wear your uniform. Whatever you do, don't wear your uniform. Keep a low profile, hide, because uh, you don't want to be seen." And I thought to myself, "Why? 
I'm from a long line of patriotic Americans. You know, I'm a Virginian, you know, and and just did my duty. And I I didn't understand. I asked myself, you know, what, isn't this America? You know, what, what? I didn't understand that. And then I saw all those demonstrators. And I went across the Golden Gate in a taxi cab. I wanted to go to Sausalito. Nice little picturesque town on the on the water there. And when I was going across the Golden Gate, I realized everybody was in this tremendous hurry. And I, I had just been in the field the day before. Remember that. I just left the war the day before. Hot, bloody, and dying of death. And going across the Golden Gate, and everybody's speeding. And it was like today. Everybody's speeding everywhere. You know, it's like a raceway on our highways. And I thought to myself, where? why is everybody going so fast? Where are they going, you know? And then I, I was just like, well, they're just they're just living their lives, right? So I found this lounge, uh, Sausalito, and I sat. I went in the lounge and I sat there at a coffee table by myself in this glorious uniform. I had this lieutenant's uniform with all the ribbons and everything, and uh, I sat there and uh, at this coffee table, put my feet up on the coffee table. I remember that I was sipping a red wine, watching these little sailboats as they floated out there, and I'm thinking, wow, I'm home, you know? It's over. It's over. I'm alive. Uh, uh, and I'm trying to get rid of all the uh, blood and guts and the dying and the death and the guilt of living when somebody of my men didn't. And just trying to realize that I'm alive, you know? And there was people in there. There was people at the bar, and they were like normal, and they were laughing and talking. And I was so, I was so bothered that they were laughing. They were laughing, you know, like I was just another soldier that was coming home from that war that nobody liked, you know, that unpopular war, ten thousand miles away. I didn't know anything. And I was waiting for someone, anyone, to come say, "Hey, good job, welcome home," you know, give them a hug, you know. And uh, I realized something that I would never forget. I realized that they didn't care. No. They just didn't care. I'm so yeah. sorry. Yeah. For not just what you went through, but all of you yeah. that went through that. That. That's just to me disgraceful yeah. like you fought a war that honestly i didn't feel that it was really necessary what was the purpose the war developed a life of its own five presidents i went over in 68 i just lost a good friend and joseph P joseph l galloway that wrote, We Were Soldiers Once and Young with General Hal Moore about LZ X-Ray, which was the first major battle we had in 1965. I fought in the same area, the same enemy. So we clicked on that. And I had breakfast with him and his lovely wife, Gracie, and their, his little therapy dog just two months ago, June 6th of all things. I didn't realize it was D-Day. And we had breakfast and we were talking about the battles and, and, uh, I know, even though he was a reporter, he received the Bronze Star for pulling somebody out of harm's way, who died three days later from a friendly napalm strike, which happened in war, close contact. 
and he started crying and I realized even though he wasn't a soldier, he had PTSD. Mm -hmm. So I just lost Joseph L. Galloway, a great American, a great soldier, even though he wasn't a soldier. He had a weapon and uh, he was in a lot of wars. He wrote a lot of books and he loved uh, Vietnam veterans. And his wife, when we were having breakfast, his wife asked me, she said, you were a lieutenant. And I said, yes. And then she said, and you're still alive? So the attrition rate of a lieutenant under fire was like 10 seconds. They would see the antenna on the radio operator and they'd shoot the man in front of them. First, that'd be their first target. So a lot of, I think I went over to Vietnam with 126 officers, replacement officers from my battalion. And nine of us came back. All of us were wounded. I joined my rifle platoon under fire on a hilltop. I had to jump out of a helicopter, fell about 10 feet, had all this new gear on, so I hit my back and knocked the wind out of me. And Somebody was on me. There was a gunner on me. He was shooting all around me. And I, a lot of people don't understand what it feels like to have an AK-47 popping by you and hitting the ground around you. And I thought I was dead. And, and then a big hand reached up and grabbed me and pulled me down on a foxhole. And that's how I met my platoon sergeant under fire. So he's talking to me all the while shooting at the enemy. He'd pop up and shoot at the enemy. And then he'd come down and say, Lieutenant Myers, I'm Sergeant Ferguson, Sergeant First Class Ferguson. And we'd shoot some more. And I, all I wanted to do is get my head into my helmet and as deep as I could in that hole. And it wasn't long after that. The first big fight we were in was called LZ Center, and he was the first man I saw killed in front of me. And he was uh, doing what normally a lieutenant would be doing, but he knew I was young and wanted to break me in. And, he, you know, so he took my bullet. So I had to live with that for years. And then to come home, and that's, that's one of many, many deaths that I experienced and lost, but and a lot of heroes. But then I, I, we're good at hiding. Uh, Vietnam veterans, even today, they're good at hiding. Sometimes too much from themselves. I hide from themselves. But I went, I call, I call it my 10-year post-Vietnam drift. And I took my dogs and went up into the mountains above Arcata, California, a place called Blue Lake, California, in the redwoods, old logging roads, and lived in a trailer for a year with just me and my dogs. I was scared to death to go into town and I had to go into town to get things, but I was, I was always scared to death going to town because I was afraid somebody would try and talk to me. Somebody would ask me a question and I hated society at this point. I didn't want anything to do with anybody. And it took me years, years to get over that. In the mid eighties, I went into a, Redwoods Vietnam Veteran Outreach Center in Eureka, California. Came down off the mountain, mid-80s. And I, I, wanted, I listened to a group. I was an officer, so there was a little alienation, and most of the guys in the group weren't officers. So they had that little alienation. So I didn't want to bother anybody with that problem. So I just listened. And I heard my story a lot. You know, I heard a lot of the same things. And then a guy named Jack Jones, which was the the uh, facilitator, was an ex-Marine, was wounded in the war, took me in his office, 
very uh, graciously took me in his office and we talked a little bit and he asked me some questions, questions like, uh, do you have problems with stick to do, do you keep a job or do you move from job to job? And I said, yeah. He said, do you have trouble with relationships? I was getting divorced from my wife of, when I was young. And I said, yeah. Uh, do people bounce off you? Yeah. He said, uh, do you have a problem with society in general? I said, yeah. So there was a full-length mirror there. He said, well, look in the mirror. What do you see? And I said, I see me. He said, well, maybe you're the problem. And that's the first time I was able to turn and look at myself and say, okay, maybe people are just doing the best they can, you know, and maybe I should give them a break, you know, and sisters, family, because family was our worst enemies because they would uh, just trying to love you, but they'd say things like Vietnam's over, forget about it. It was a mistake. And you can't. Yeah. How are you going to forget about people? You know, because you went over there and you saw, and it's like your eyes became a camera and recorded every experience that yeah. not just you went through, but the rest of the soldiers went through and you yeah. just can't erase that. That's, yeah. That's trauma. That's emotional, energetic trauma. That's classic PTSD. Originally, they call it the Vietnam syndrome, post, and then post-Vietnam syndrome, and then post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, anybody can have that. But I, a lot of times, I had a psychiatrist back then. And by the way, the, the person that started the Vietnam Veteran Outreach Centers is Senator Max Cleland. He's also a friend of mine. And he even came to, I was part of Band of Brothers for Kerry back then, and I knew Max very well. And uh, so I, he was the head of the VA at the time. He started that. So it was a great healing for a lot of, a lot of Vietnam veterans that were drifting. But the one thing I, the, let me, the proudest thing I ever did in my life was to lead American soldiers in combat in a bloody war in the bloodiest year. And I lost a lot of men, and we, you know, we, we fought a war like Americans fight wars. And I was trained so well, Ranger trained, Special Forces trained, OCS, Infantry School. When I took over that platoon, I mean, I was as good as America had. We fought a war like Americans are supposed to fight wars. And we always depended on each other, and we died for each other. So when you ask about the reasons at the time when I went over, it was like fighting communism. That's all we knew. We were soldiers. We didn't care. We, we were just doing our duty, right? America wanted us there. And there's no color in war. The only colors were the red of our blood, the green of our uniform, and the red, white, and blue that we fought under. The rest of it is nonsense, you know? We're just all Americans. But I thought the proudest thing in my life for many years, I, I, I thought Vietnam was the nucleus of who I was. It took me a lot of years to realize it's just a big part of me. It's not all of me. It's just a part of me. And coming down off that mountain and realizing that life goes on and I can't keep hiding. I had a psychiatrist say that somehow you've turned and embraced it where a lot of people don't. And he said, use writing as a catharsis. I started writing. And um, 
Another one said you may you you stay in shape because you're maintaining battle readiness. Another one said you're an actor, which I was for years, because you get away from yourself. So I had all the all the the tools to get away from who I was. But it wasn't until I looked in that mirror that I saw me, you know. So the proudest moment I had was to lead those soldiers in combat. This is 1968, 1969, while you're being born, which is so cute. <laughs> <laughs> But then when, uh, I, when I got back to the States, I was assigned the duty of officer in charge of funeral detail. Oh. So buried our soldiers for a few months, sometimes three, five a week, because Vietnam was still hot and heavy. So then I thought, well, this is probably the proudest thing I could do. I was the OIC. I was the guy that handed the flag, did the salute and said, kneeled in front of him, said on behalf of the United States and the guns and the bugle and, you know, very emotional, constantly. We were sharp, just as sharp as we could be. So that became just as proudful, if not more so than leading them, as burying them. Until I started writing. And then I took, a, that psychiatrist said you should need to write. I took six dental pads, sat in front of my house, and regurgitated everything I could think of about the war. This is uh, going on 80, somewhere late 70s, going on 80. Because from 69 to 79, I, I, it's just a blank, you know? It's just, I, I was drifting. I was just existing. But I took those six stental pads and I just regurgitated everything. And it just, they were all full. And then I looked at them and I realized all I'd done was touch the surface. You know, I got a ripple in the water to what all that took place. And about that time, 1980, I got associated with Jim Anderson, which is the associate producer for Vietnam War Story series which was popular in the 80s, along with Robosize, these two big series that came out for HBO. So I was part of the input of HBO's Vietnam War Story series. And they even did one called The Lieutenant that I think was loosely based on, on me. And I wrote one thing for Tales from the Crypt about that time, too. So that kept me real busy. So I'm going to take you to another area. Now, 9-11. 9-11. I was with a lady for 22 years, and I was still acting in California, but we had a house in Idaho because she wanted to be close to her mother, excuse me, who was in her late 60s and who had been attacked, home invasion attack, left for dead. So she survived, so Patty wanted to be near her mother, so we got a house in Idaho Falls where she was, beautiful area, Idaho Falls. Too cold for me. I'm not a cold person, but I lived in Alaska and Idaho for Pete's sakes. But so I would drive to California to be in these three plays this year. So we watched 9-11 together in horror like everybody else did. And then I had to go back to California. So I took my dog, my one of the dogs that was up on the mountain with me, Sport. Great, great border collie. Taught me every trick he knows create the smartest dog I've ever known and uh, took him with me in that Christmas. So that's 9-11. And 
And then that Christmas, Sport got sick and with cancer. And uh, I took him to this vet, and I, this vet gave him all kinds of whatever, and it killed him. So I lost Sport. So I would, and then, so I told, talk, told Patty I'd lost Sport. And she said, well, she won't realize it until she sees me and he's not at my side. I still had the scars of him hanging on my truck window all the time, you know, where he'd have his claws and stuff. And so for years until I sold the truck. But I would call Patty every day, you know, see how she's doing. And sometimes I couldn't get a hold of her. Call her the next day, I'd get a hold of her. Third day came along, I couldn't get a hold of her. So I called her mother, and her mother said, Are you sitting down? And I knew my life had changed. I lost her too. So it was bang, bang, bang. Not a good year for me. So I had this gathering. I lived this in, I lived in this area, Trinidad, California. I had this beautiful glass and wood belt home, big deck, overlooking the ocean of Trinidad, and behind me is the redwoods. It's kind of like just paradise, right? When I'd come home at night, I'd have to wait until the five skunks were gone or the bear was done with the compost heap or the deer would move on. You know, I didn't want to disturb anybody. It was that kind of environment. So I invited, uh, one time I invited on the second time I lived there, which was 10 years later, I invited some veteran friends and some acting friends over for a get together. And one veteran, pulled me into the kitchen, pulled me aside in the kitchen. He said, Michael, he said, I want you to know that you said something to me 10 years ago that changed my life. I said, wow. So well, what was it? And like a good old Vietnam veteran, he said, I don't want to go there, but I just want you to know that you changed my life. And I thought, wow, man, wow. So, then I'm writing, and when I, when Patty dies, I drop everything. I never acted again. I didn't. I mean, I was in commercials and plays, and but I never acted again. And I that's when I started writing in seriousness. I came back to Virginia Beach, where I have extended family in this area. So I've been here since the oceanfront since 2002 when she died. Dropped everything. Just couldn't be there. Dropped everything. Brought a dog and a cat. Drove across country and uh, stayed here and started writing in more seriousness. And then I put a play together. I took all these stental pads and plus a lot more. And I wrote my first play because I knew blocking and I knew acting and I knew directing because I, you know, I knew I could I could write dialogue. I could write scenes. I I, I got ten novels laying around somewhere that I've started, but I'm a scene writer. You know, I can write, I want people to see it and feel it. Mm -hmm. So I could do that. So I wrote my first play and I called it Badges of Honor. Mm. And everybody immediately thought, well, that's got to be about your medals. I said, no, no, it's not about medals. It's about our dreams. Our dreams are our badges of honor. And I tell veterans all that all the time, keep your head up, live your life in dignity, because if you don't, then you're insulting the people that didn't get to live their lives with you, the ones you left on those hilltops. Like a piece of me is still 21, 22. It's like, but when I was 21 and 22, I was somehow catapulted to who I am now. 
So when I was young, I was old. And now that I'm older, I was young. I'm still young. So then I got, so that play, I invited about 100 people. And we had a hotel conference center going going it with me, and they provided a meal and a room, and I provide and I provided the entertainment, and we split split the cost. And I invited about a hundred people. It was really received well. So I broke it down into three one act plays, and I called the first one a healing of war, about a something I always wanted to do, which was a lieutenant visiting the family after the war to tell them about the death of their heroic son or husband based on my platoon sergeant, first man I saw kill. So I entered it into a play festival. I thought, well, what the heck? Let's see what it does. I entered it into a play festival, and it won the play festival, like 15 plays. It won. It's like, And then the award night, I remember when we were rehearsing, there was like 15 of everybody would come into our closed rehearsal, actors, directors, and they like half full auditorium of people that aren't supposed to be in there. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, well, we heard this play was so good. We had to see it. So I knew I had something going and a healing of war. And I just took everybody post healing and traumatic events like the mom and dad were divorced and kind of at odds because they blamed each other. And the sister was a drunk and not a drunk, but drank a lot, and was had a Hollywood dream going. And the three of them were. And then the lieutenant came and told them the story of their heroic son. And it kind of heals the family called a healing of war. So that play became real popular. It was featured in. Uh, at the Will Rogers Auditorium in Texas, Fort Worth, Texas. It was featured in DC, different groups did it. And I did it in where we had the play festival, of course, in Smithfield, Virginia. So I went to the one in DC and I was in the audience and they introduced me and I watched this female director and I had this wonderful, I did this all dramatic thing, you know, but she did this, wonderful, eloquent, feminine daughter, mother, touching. And it was just really wonderful the way she did it. Still had the same impact. And after the play, they introduced me, and a young Marine came to me, Iraqi Marine, and said, you were there, weren't you? I said, he said, I can tell because all the words you used and everything. And we shook hands and hugged. And I knew I'd helped another veteran, you know? So then I realized that my writing is not just my catharsis. It's helping heal veterans and families and people that have died and gone. And like the, the 13 that we just lost, these families are suffering, you know? And so my writing, I feel my first duty was to whatever my life led me to that those battlefields leading those brave American soldiers. And it led me to the duty of, of burying these brave American soldiers and Marines, and not just so in my case soldiers, but Marines. And now I feel it's my duty through my writing to help them find their way home again, which I mean to themselves. To, and I tell them all the time, lift your head. I walked around like this forever. You know, I walked around with my head down. I hid in the, hid in the mountains and 
But now I tell them, lift it, lift your head, you know, lift your head. What you did was good. You did a good thing, you know. You you did a good thing, and you need to be proud of that. Don't forget that pride. And if you and PTSD. I had one guy said, Mike, I've been married and divorced six times. And I said, well, that just shows that you're not afraid of commitment. You know, you're, you're not afraid of commitment. I said, I've only been married once, but I've been divorced five or six times. You know, it just shows that you're not afraid of commitment. PTSD. I have, you know, I have that. I have that. I get, I, I'm disabled. I get disability for PTSD and wounds, you know. Mine was like one, if you have one plane crash or one death next to you, bad car crash, people killed, see somebody die, that's PTSD, right? Mm -hmm. You take a combat veteran and you multiply that multitude times. Like mine was eight plus. Eight plus. Can you imagine 21, 22 years old going through eight traumatic events? At least when I go to the wall at the memorial, there's 12 names that I know, not counting the faces that I don't remember their names. So it's very traumatic. But here's the thing about PTSD, and I tell this to veterans all the time, and if they're listening to your show, they have to remember this. PTSD is not it's not a weakness. You know when you cut yourself or you hurt yourself, you could break your bone, you have surgery, something like that. What is the sign of healing? A scar, right? A scar. That scar you proudly show and that this is what happened then and this is my sign of healing. That's what PTSD is. PTSD is a scarring of an emotional wound. So we're emotionally wounded and the PTSD is our scar, and you cannot run away from a scar. You learn to live with it. You live with it, and you live with it in pride, which gives you a different attitude. Like it's not shameful to be receiving a disability when you bled for your country or when you fought for your country. I don't think a veteran, a combat veteran, we have too many homeless, should ever want for anything, a home, food, transportation, comfort. They should never want for anything. And I don't, I've never talked to anybody that doesn't agree with that. But yet, I agree with you. Yeah. But yet, the refugees that we brought home from Texas, and I think that's all good. I, I, I love that because that's what America is. But when we brought the refugees home from Vietnam, we, they were fishermen. So our government, and this was down in Port Lucas, Texas, or something like that. Our, our government gave them a fishing boat so they could continue their lifestyle and gave them $50,000, set them up for life. Never did anything like that for us. We were no, all. I find that odd. Like, you're, wait a minute. You, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. I know. There's the common sense in that. I know. And I know. the fact that you talk about the 13 soldiers, and I, I, my heart goes out to the family. Oh, yeah. God. But would you. And they were helping people. And would you agree that we've been there 20 years? 
our tax dollars is paying for that. Yeah. I I honestly feel they were there way too long. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it was a ter- 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 policeman, big brother. That's who we are. We have more people. We have, we have had soldiers and Marines that die all over this world for other people. That's who we are. We're the big brother. We're the policeman. But the politics that get involved in it, it goes Thank on you. and on from one president to the other president. And then nobody wants to. I think that they forget. And, and the politicians, if they want to fight wars, have their children fight the wars. Have their children in the service fighting the wars. You know, not other people's children. And that's what wars are. Wars are you take your young and your best young against their best young. And it's just, and nobody wins. There's no winning in a war. No, There's it's all money. It's a lot of dying. And we used to we used to joke and not joke, but we'd say, you know, well, there it is. It ain't nothing but a thing because that's the only way you can keep moving forward. Or somebody said, well, it was his time. His time. There was just a lot of bullets. And if you lean this way or you lean that way, you're dead. You know, that's when in a war, it's not it's not about somebody's time. You know, it's just it's 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 insanity. It's the insanity of man. And would you agree that it's it's to me it's like and I I've looked up, you know, there's history going back ninety five thousand years of wars because they wanted to conquer and divide. Yeah, and and, and now looking at the timelines of history, it evolved and changed to it's like a money making business. Yeah, a lot of profit in it, a lot of profit in it, but you know. America, unfortunately, has been in a major war every 20 years. Mm-hmm. Every 20 years, we're in a major war. I don't know. I don't know. I just think somewhere. That's like history repeating itself, Mike. If you look yeah. at me, if you know about every 20 years, okay, what? how was the economy run? Who was, you know, the politicians at those times? What did they stand for? What was their values? Oh, wait. And then you got the rich elite. Mm-hmm. There are, it's all connecting the dots. And the same thing is happening to the mm-hmm. Afghan veterans that happened to the Vietnam veterans. They went over, a lot of them went over individually and they came back individually. And then they, people want them to uh, slide back into society, who they were. They'll never be who they were, you know? I mean, yeah. the attrition rate in, in the war, and I don't want to sound like a World War II vet to the Vietnam veteran. But that's why I gave you the statistics. And I don't want to sound like that to the younger veterans, but the attrition rate was a lot smaller than the 59,000 that we lost in, in Vietnam. And we did pull out, but we didn't learn any lessons. You know, we, yeah. we, can't, we can't just continue and continue and continue and let it develop a life of its own. I mean, that world is 50 years behind us, 50 years behind most of society in the Western world. And they, they're just going to hopefully – Everything will be good. You know, hopefully they'll find a way and live a life. And But it's not up to us to tell other people how they have to live. That's like a one religion telling you, well, you know, if you don't believe my way, then you're going to hell. You know, it's just it, it's just not right. So. No, so it's the, not. And yeah. the thing about it is, is like, OK, from my understanding, ever since Vietnam. OK, and. Uh, <laughs> That you guys pulled out, it ended. How are they living now? Yeah. It's a tourist. They're prospering. 
Yeah. yeah. So my question is, is, you know, because of cabal, the getting a war with America and whatnot, are they going to do the same thing like Vietnam? They see a different way of living. Let's hope so. Let's hope that they'll let their women be human beings, you know? Well, that's gone. Oh, we can. This is a whole nother topic to talk about about women and yeah. how they were treated <laughs> ninety five thousand years ago and what. Yeah, so yeah. That is a. That's you know a, the words. The, goes back the, to the religion. Yeah, the words coming out of there are encouraging, but we'll see how true they are. You know, they said they're going to let women have rights and so, but right away they're closing schools and so. I don't know. I don't. You know what? I I, I I'm seventy four. I'm going to be seventy five in October. I haven't got time left to worry about that, you know. I want right. to just I want to live my life. I want to help. Like I said, I want my writing to help people as much as they as they can. But what what is a veteran gonna do with that stuff? You know, what what do they do with that stuff? They can walk around with their head down, and we suffered because of Hollywood. John Landis with the Twilight Zone movie, the one that Vic Morrow died in. I mean, one scene, for instance, that everybody loved the movie, but one scene where Vic Morrow drops in the jungle, a snake rolls by him, he's in the water, and all of a sudden you hear all this rock and roll music, a bunch of splashing around, and all these soldiers are all bunched up together, which we didn't do, and we didn't carry rock and roll radios. And they're passing a joint around, and they're talking about how they shouldn't have fragged lieutenant so-and-so the night before. All the insults that we could get in one scene, there they were. And then Rambo, you know? What was that? That was somebody's fictitious book. And it made us look like we were crazed people running around on the verge of killing everybody. You know, it's just that was an insult. That movie was terrible. Those movies were terrible. And then Platoon. My God, what was that nonsense? Where two soldiers are killing and smoking pot, doing shot. I mean, that was obviously Oliver Stone obviously had a problem with authority and was, for the most part, a rear echelon soldier where most of that stuff took place. In my years, 68 and 69, none of that. I mean, all we were just trying to stay alive. And the last thing you want to be is out of your mind when you're trying to stay alive, you know? Yeah, I, I, I agree with so, you. I don't think that was like, it, it's just Hollywood and yeah. entertainment. Yeah. And to be honest, <laughs> wait, hold on. Uh-huh. <laughs> I hope you don't take offense. <laughs> but growing up, I remember a TV show that my dad introduced me to. Now, I'm young, so I really didn't connect the dots. So, you know, forgive me for that. But it was called MASH. Oh, yeah, Alan MASH. That was Oliver. about Korea. That was about Korea. Okay, so, but me being young, I I thought it was about Vietnam. Oh, yeah. Well, it was similar. Okay, was, so that was my yeah, next question. Yeah. Like, was it like somewhat like that? Yeah, it was a lot like that. Yeah, it really was. That was the rear area. That was like a forward medical unit where the soldiers would fly in there if they were wounded. We had that. Yeah, they had that over there. So we would always get medevac on chopper and uh, fly into one of those mass units. They still had mass units. And that's where they did the triage and, you know, immediate surgery and stuff. And then they'd send you to the hospitals in the back area. So, so yeah. I, I was a kid. I was watching this. I'm like, wow. Yeah, that was well it done. Was like a, 
you know, and then, you know, if you go back in history, you know, with the Civil War, they just took over people's houses and made it a, a medical unit. Yeah. Yeah. There's places like that in Virginia still that were historic places that were hospitals in the middle of a golf course and things like that. Yeah, that was that was necessary. And, and we started saving more lives that way, too, as in Korea and Vietnam, especially. We know if you got no chopper, you, you're going to your survival rates better. World War II, you know, you just died out there if you couldn't get you anywhere. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. There was another one, China Beach. Remember that one? That was about Vietnam. Okay. But with World War II, wasn't that around the Spanish influenza and no one really won the war because everybody was so sick? Uh, that I don't know. Was that World War Two or World War One? World War Two was a 19. result of World War Two was a result of Hitler and Japan. Okay, so it was World War One then? Okay. Yeah, yeah, See, I get yeah. the numbers mixed up. Yeah, but I but, know there was yeah, a that war was, that nobody yeah. won because yeah, everybody that was twenty years from the Spanish influenza. I remember yeah, that was that. twenty years before World War Two, and then twenty years after was Korea, and then twenty years after was Vietnam, and so yeah. Well, looking so, at it in that perspective, Mike, it's like history repeating itself when we haven't learned our lesson. Yeah, yeah. So what I've, my most recent work, you take these veterans and all these difficulties and troubles they have, and they lead, they come to a place where some of them make an Ill illogical assumption to take their life. Yeah. And that was up to 22 a day a year or so ago, 22 a day were taking their own life. I don't know what it is now. It's still high. And now we have a lot of new troubled veterans, but it's still high. So I wrote one and I, I had a play that I, I wrote, not a play, but a script I wrote for Tales from the Crypt called Billy and the One-Armed Bandit, which is kind of a spooky thing. But I also included jumpers. I included, I put nine, I rewrote it and put nine eleven in it. And I had, because we all watched in horror that these people jump into their death rather than burn alive. And what a horrible thing to suddenly have to face. So, But we don't know who they were. So in my story, Billy and the One-Armed Bandit, I included three of those jumpers. So you get to know them, their struggle for life. The lady, one lady and two men, one of them's the main character, the writer and his agent and the lady. And they were meeting at the Windows of the World restaurant on top of the World Trade Center, and the lady has children, and they got together, and they had to jump together. And my connection with that is my oldest son, Mike Jr., uh, was in the Army Intel for nine years, and he, at the time, I think he was going to Princeton, and he would meet his stepdad at the World Trade Center Windows of the World restaurant up on top every morning for breakfast before they'd go their separate ways. Except that day, that and his stepdad would ride his motorcycle into New York to meet him. That day, he had to get his motorcycle worked on at the shop, so he couldn't make it. So they did not meet on that day. So that was really my closest connection to that. But of course, we're all connected because we all watched in horror that that that. Well, happened. that was my birthday. Nine eleven is my birthday. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. So I get a constant reminder. Wow. My and birthday is October 12th, which is Columbus Day, Indigenous Day now. Well, thank you. Yes. But, yay. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so, 
Yeah, that's quite a birthday you have. Quite a birthday. Yeah, it took me three years to celebrate. Yeah. Finally, and then when I do, we got Hurricane Jean and Francis, and we were under a mandatory curfew. And I finally had the nerve to go out and celebrate. And then I see the SWAT team coming, and I'm like, I'm not going to jail on my birthday. Let's go. <laughs> so, what part of the country are you in? I'm in South Florida. South Florida. Yes. No, I have a brother down in Florida. So I'm getting married uh, in October. Well, congratulations. Yeah, at our stage, you know, I figure I got a beautiful girl. She's five years younger than me. She looks a lot younger than her years. And I was in the health club business forever, so I stayed healthy and don't smoke and hardly drink. And so I'm, I'm still in pretty good shape. So I figure, you know, at this age, you know, Grab well, a good thing, good thing while you got it. You yes, know? enjoy. You, you only live once. That's right. Make the best of it. That's and right. I know, you know, soldiers experience the the mo especially during a war, what you see, what you guys experience, and whatnot, and then having to come home and to adjust to try to have a normal life, but you have these memories and these emotional energetic traumas and the one thing i can you know say is you know because my heart goes out to y'all you know i've experienced my own traumas but i could not even imagine i couldn't go to war there's no i would be wanting peace you know like hey we don't have to war come on let's put our weapons down let's yeah. think about this but then to come home is create a new version and better version of yourself. I think, women, I think it would be a good thing if women ran the world for a while. I really do. Why not? Yeah. I'm There's been some great that. women leaders. Margaret Thatcher was a great leader. Uh, and there are Gandhi. Uh, there's been some great women leaders. Uh, the German uh, Merkel, she's doing a great, fantastic job. You know, they I think we're we tuned into our intuition, Mike. We 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 pay attention to intuition. That's right. That's right. That's right. Saying. That's right. But yeah. Yeah. the one thing is, I know about energy work, energy healing, hypnotherapy to help those that are still struggling with PTSD. If well, they can get to you know to start working on that and then create a whole new best version of themselves, I'd be helping you guys all the time. Yeah, I would volunteer to help guide you, to help steer you into the right people that want to help, that love you, and for everything that you, you, you guys do, and women. Well, I appreciate that. I, I uh, wrote this thing called A Soldier's Final Act. And that's a play, but it also could be, are you familiar with HBO's room? Is it 401 or 104? There's a little series they have where they have a motel room and they have all these different metaphysical things, different stories happen in this one room called room 104 or 401. I can't remember. Maybe 104. But I, uh, decided, I thought, well, I can do that. You know, I can certainly do that. I can put everything in one room. It, it kind of makes it easier for a set and stuff. 
And I think it could be an HBO story. And I decided to go ahead and introduce America to one of these soldiers that uh, has made this decision to take his life. And he enters this hotel room. If you don't mind, I'll share a little bit of it with you, the opening here with this veteran. Yes. And this, is, this is designed, originally it was called a soldier's final act of kindness. And then it transformed into a soldier's final act of redemption. And then it just became a soldier's final act, which is where I have it now. And it's completed. And the first act is called the soldier. The set, act two is the girl and act three is the redemption. Well, in the first act, the soldier is there and he's trying to get help. He's pretty much made the decision to take his life, but he's still reaching out. He's reaching out to his doctor through the VA. He's reaching out to his therapist. He's reaching out to his wife. And everybody's just kind of giving him the runaround. And he just gets, he's angry, and he's made this uh, decision to end his life. And eventually, he talks to these ghosts, these different ghosts. And these ghosts are my ghosts. These are the ghosts that I brought. I mean, most of my writing, they say write about what you know. So I, I write my history into my stories. So these are my ghosts, and they're real. It's true. All the stories are true. And he talks to these different ghosts. On Light appears, and he talks to a ghost. And then he's on the phone again. And then the light appears, and he talks to another ghost. And eventually, he stands up, puts his jacket on, salutes the audience, has a gun in his left hand, walks off stage, and takes his life. We hear a gunshot. Second act, we have a... A young girl, her father and her mother, the girl's 16-ish, she's goth, green hair, piercings, black black nail, you know, boots, the goth type. And she's always had trouble with bullying and uh, even her sexuality and has always fought with her dad. And her dad's a no-nonsense guy. And they're there in this hotel room because his proud, his beautiful son that he loves, such a heroic son, football star quarterback, is injured in a football accident, which explains why they're there. And then it becomes this battle between the daughter and the father, and the mother. And the father eventually storms out of the room, and the mother takes one of her pills and argues with the daughter and storms out of the room. At one point, I have both of those actors freeze, and the daughter walks around them expressing her feelings. And, and they finally leave her alone for a few minutes, and she's about to take her life, and she's taking her mother's pills that she's found. Act three opens, and here's the spirit of this veteran that's taken his life in this room just before. And he's kind of wandering, doesn't know what he's doing, where he's at, can't remember anything. And he sees this little girl, this young lady that's over there taking these pills. And he says, hey, hey, what, what? And she doesn't see him. The audience sees him. We know he's there, but she doesn't see him. He's a spirit. And she freaks out, and she thinks she's losing her mind, and she's it's so forth. And she's already taken enough pills that she's, it's going to do damage to her. And through conversation, he doesn't tell her how to fix things. That's the number one thing people should not do with a combat veteran is tell them how to fix it. I always said, Walk a mile in a combat veteran's shoes before you try and tell them how to walk in yours. You know, it's completely different. So through conversation, he's not telling her how to fix things, but through conversation, he convinces her that maybe there's a better way, you know, that he, he cut the golden thread 
between him and his his wife and child that they too had that loving thread, you know, to him. And he didn't take them in consideration when he took his life. He took their life too, basically. So through conversation, he convinces her not to do that. And then she collapses. She's taking so many pills, she's close to death. And about that time, the parents come back. And they're hugging and screaming and hollering because their daughter is dying. And through this, the spirit of the veteran walks up and reaches over his father, her father's shoulders, touches her on the chest and says, it's not your time, young girl, young lady, or you little girl. It's not your time, little girl. And she gasps awake and she lives and they're all hugging and crying and loving. And, and the veteran kind of drifts upstage into a white light and walks into the light and the light disappears and he's gone. He's been redeemed. So I'm going to share with you the opening scene of the soldier that goes into this room, if you'd like. Sure. Okay. The soldier enters. He's carrying an army officer's dress uniform jacket. He's already wearing the dress uniform slacks that have a gold stripe down the sides of the legs. He lays the uniform jacket along with a small satchel on the bed. He then pulls his cell phone out of his pocket and dials a number. He then tries to be patient as he responds to a series of phone bank messages. With disdain, he presses a single number on his phone's keypad in response to each message. He lays the phone beside him on the bed. He stands and faces the audience as he grieves, or the camera. Well, here I am at the crossroad. I used to think that life was this long drive, a, a journey, if you will, a journey to a destination or an objective as we were taught in the army. The objective was to get to the end, to complete the task, or in this case, to complete the journey. I compare it to driving, which by the way, I always enjoyed a nice car and a nice long drive. Sometimes I would drive for days, and there were a few times when I would start driving and end up going from one coast to the other, completely crossing our beautiful country. It was like in front of me was this long and winding road to be traveled. And when I would look in the rearview mirror, there was also this long and winding road of where I'd been before. But ahead, I started seeing an off-ramp that was slowly coming into view. You know, life for me has always been one of travel, to keep moving forward. Looking back is only sadness of things that have gone by. Really, the only thing that has kept me alive to this point has been living life in a forward motion, one day at a time. And now I'm here, and here I guess is where I'm supposed to be. The logic may seem, this is one of my favorite paragraphs, by the way, for a writer. The logic may seem illogical to most, and it has been said that when a soldier finds his way to this point, that he or she is confused in their illogical assumptions. But to me, it's the only logical answer. It is perfectly clear now, an end to my journey my father always said that officers don't have problems, that officers handle their own problems. Yet I feel this terrible emptiness. It's like there's a piece of me missing, this deep sadness, so deep that it permeates my soul. 
it took me forever to even admit that I had a problem. It was early, it was in the early to mid 80s when a wonderful veteran outreach counselor stood me in front of a full length mirror and asked me a couple of things. Things like, am I having trouble keeping focused? Am I having trouble keeping a job? Am I having trouble with relationships? And finally, do you have trouble relating to society? Yes. He then, then, and then he said, look in the mirror. What do you see? I see me. Well, then maybe you're the problem. That was the day I first began healing. Jack Jones was his name, a Marine that had been wounded in the war. It was the beginning of the end of my 10-year post-war drifting, a drifting that carried me into the mountains of Blue Lake, California. I lived there in a trailer along the old logging roads for a year, isolated from people, just me and my dogs. But the ghosts were there. They're always with me. They just won't let go. He lowers his head in solemnity. He picks up the dress jacket and puts it on. He leaves it unbuttoned as he's distracted and speaks into a light. I know, I, I know, damn it. I know it was my fault. It was all my fault, right? I should have been standing there. I should have been standing there. It was meant for me. It was my bullet. What? Yes, it was. You were standing where I would have been standing if I had command of the platoon. I was new and you wanted to make sure I was ready to take command of the men. They trusted you. They trusted you with their lives. That damn sniper. He fired at the man in front of the radio operator. Who knew that is where the officer would be? And when you fell, it was like a great tree had fallen. There was nothing I could do. Then I heard the breath of life leaving your body for the last time. He shudders. Oh, God, you took my bullet. You took my bullet. Another ghost. He speaks into another light. Harris. Why didn't you move when I said to move? I, I know, I know you just wanted to give cover while we got the wounded out. And we did, thanks to you. You were so brave. All of you were so damn brave. He lowers his head and weeps. He walks around the room, shaking it off. He reaches for the phone, and once again he dials. He pushes the buttons in response to the numerous phone bank messages. He continues, finally, yes, I would like to speak with Dr. Rawlings, please. And could you tell him it's an emergency? Myers, yes, M-Y, not M-E-Y. Yes, he is. How long do you think that will be? Yes, I know about that number. Lady, if I was going to commit suicide, I would not be calling for Dr. Rawlings. Now, would I? Stares at phone and shakes his head in disbelief. Listen to me. He told me that I could call him whenever I needed him. And that would be now. I need him now. Leave a voicemail, a message on his voicemail. Really? Are you kidding me? He shuts off the phone and angrily tosses it onto the bed. Damn you. He storms off stage and then quickly returns. He paces back and forth. He sits. He stands. He paces some more. 
Then he looks downward at the phone. The phone rings. Hello, Dr. Rawlings. Yes, I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm having a rough go right now. Tomorrow? Is there any way I can get in to see you today? Tomorrow? Doc? Doc, I'm really having a rough time. My, the dreams are all over me. Two? Two o'clock tomorrow? Well, okay. I, I mean, I, I guess I'll see you tomorrow then. Acquiescence. Huh? What was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay then. Tomorrow. Right. Toss his phone back onto the bed. Sits on bed and cradles his head between his palms. Tomorrow, my ass. Damn it. God damn it. Stands and paces. Exits. Crashing sounds. Enters. Fucking VA. Shitty bottom of the barrel service. And fucking clerks with bad attitudes. Excuse me. Hi, girls. Sorry. <laughs> That's the lady I'm going to marry, by the way. <laughs> 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 where, oh, here, where was I? Before I was so rudely interrupted. Fucking corpse with bad attitudes. Wait, what happened there? Yeah, you, you ended with that, with bad attitudes. Oh, yeah, here's another ghost. Another light and another ghost. You got a picture of him. He's walking around and Steve O'Hara. I'm so sorry, Steve. These are real people, by the way. These are my real. I know. I'm so sorry, Steve. I remember you and Roger were laughing so hard just the night before. Your heads were tilted back in hysterical laughter. Laughing so hard that it made me laugh with you. He laughs. <laughs> I remember asking what was so funny, but the two of you just kept laughing with nothing, sir. Nothing, LT. Whenever you men called me LT, it always made me feel like I was a part of you, like your big brother and not just your platoon leader. That is the image I try to carry with me, Steve, that wonderful image of the two of you laughing. But that's not the image that haunts me, the image that keeps jumping into my dreams. Is that Roger with you? He looks over Steve's shoulder. Roger, you were just a kid, Roger. Not quite 18 yet. It was my fault. I sent you. I watched the two of you disappear into that tree line. And then after a couple of minutes, I listened to that goddamned AK. You were just trying to get to Steve and pull him out of there after he'd gone down. We found you where you fell. Your head was laying across Steve's chest. It was it was my fault. Don't you understand? I was the lieutenant. I was supposed to bring you home. Don't you understand? He trails off. Don't you understand? He pleads to the audience or the camera, depending on if it's... A, doesn't anyone understand? It was my fault. It was my fault. He's distracted by another light. Manconi, you really made me angry, William. You insisted on getting a rifle platoon. 
didn't you? I told you we needed you with your weapons platoon, but you insisted. He sits on the edge of the bed. You had to get your goddamned rifle platoon, didn't you? And look where it got you, caught between two enemy bunkers trying to save one of your soldiers. They could only watch as you were riddled with automatic weapons. He lowers his head and weeps. Damn it, man. If you'd only listened to me. If you'd just listened to me. He gathers himself and sees the cell phone next to him on the bed. Once again, he picks it up and dials. Come on, Veronica. Come on. Answer. Answer. Please answer. He shuts the phone off and holds it in his lap for a few seconds. Then he redials. He paces as he leaves a message. Veronica, if you get this message, he weeps. Listen, I want you to know I am sorry. I'm so sorry for any of the pain I may have caused you, and I want you to know that I loved you so very much, but that I was just a stupid, mixed-up soldier. I do hope you understand that I just can't live with the guilt any longer. Why am I here? Why did I survive when so many of my men didn't? While holding the phone in his hand, he looks upward and to God and calmly asks, Why, God? Why me? He continues pacing, sits down on the bed, stands again, and continues pacing. Once again, he addresses God. Why am I the one still alive? About this time, the music from Jose Feliciano's Light My Fire comes up in the background. He listens to the music for a minute and sees another ghostly light. Captain? I don't even remember your name, sir. I do remember you always asking me for all sorts of different weapons, though. Even a pearl-handled thirty-eight caliber pistol. I thought you were trying to be some sort of a cowboy. You said as the artillery forward observer you would be flying over enemy territory and that you just wanted to be prepared. Then I was told that you had been shot down and the last thing anyone heard on the radio was small arms fire. I hope you gave them hell, sir. Damn it. I'm so sorry for not remembering your name. I do remember you said you had a, just been married to your beautiful new French wife. I remember how much you loved her and how she loved this song. Now, when I hear this song, I'm always reminded of you and your lovely wife. If only I'd gotten your name, I could find her and tell her how much you loved her. Trails off as the music fades, how much you loved her. He returns his attention to the phone and dials as we hear his therapist, the voice of his therapist. Hello? Lorraine, this is Michael. Michael is, my therapist's name is Laurie. Not a far reach. Michael, it's been a while since our last appointment. How are you doing? He hesitates. I guess I'm not doing very well. Oh, what's wrong? She is distracted by someone. Hang on, Michael. Hang on just a second, okay? I'll be right back. Waits for a minute until she returns. She's aggravated. Sorry about that. Silence. Michael, are you there? Yes, I'm here. 
I'm sorry for calling, but I guess I just needed someone to talk to. I just needed to talk to someone. Therapist, would you like to make an appointment? Let me see. I'm on vacation after the holidays, but I have a one o'clock appointment available on the 16th. Does that work for you? The 16th? Yes, that's the earliest. If I miss my vacation, I will lose my days. I can schedule you for then, but if you need to see someone sooner, you can call Dr. Rawlings. Thank you. I've done that. Oh, you have? Good. I'll put you down for the 16th then. Michael? Michael? I want to thank you. I really want to thank you for all you've done for me. You're very welcome, Michael. I just wish we could do more for you. I will see you in a couple of weeks then. Seriously, thank you, Lorraine, for all you've done for me. Therapist. And we want and we all want to thank you, Michael, for what you've done for us. He stares at the phone and then redials. Ronnie's voice can be heard as she answers. Michael, it's me. Honey, where are you? I've been very worried. Where are you, Michael? I did the best I could, didn't I? Was I a good man, Ronnie? Was I a good father? What do you mean was? You're a very good man, baby. And you're an excellent father. Are you having the dreams again, Michael? He pauses, lowers his head, and wipes his eyes. Michael, Michael, are you there? Michael, she screams. Michael. Yes, it's the dreams again. I lost so many people. It's just not right. Ronnie says, you were a kid, Michael. All of you were just kids. You were only 22. It's a shame what happened to you, to all of you. He says, but a leader is not supposed to be alive when his men are not. I just cannot get over it, and I walk with ghosts, ghosts who will never let go of me. Is KK there? No, honey. She's having a pajama party at my sister's house tonight. Oh, I wanted to say goodbye. What do you mean goodbye, Michael? What What do you mean goodbye? The insurance will be enough for you and little Katie. Please take good care of her and make sure she knows just how much her daddy loved her. Michael, Michael, don't you do this to us. We need you, Michael. He breaks again. I'm sorry, Ronnie. Please find true happiness. Ronnie says, Michael, no, Michael, no, please, baby, don't do this. Please, baby, please don't leave us. Michael, Michael, she screams. He kisses the phone and then gently places the phone beside him. He stares at it and sits for a long minute, completely distraught. He weeps as he reaches into his satchel and retrieves a handgun. He paces in anxiousness. He buttons his jacket and straightens it, straightens the lapels. He stands tall with gun in left hand and at his side. He salutes the audience and then walks off stage. In a couple of seconds, a gunshot. Ronnie can be heard screaming his name. Michael, Michael. That's the opening act. Wow. <laughs> Pretty heavy, wow. yeah?
Yeah. yeah those, are, those are my ghosts. Uh, to meet a woman that can see through all that, still love you, you know, it's good. It it's is good. good. Yeah. And, and you, know, that, you mentioned earlier about PTSD. And there is something that came to my mind and it's like, it, it's a saying of either you could be defined by it or you can do something better so it doesn't control. Like you're not defined by your the PTSD. Mm -hmm. You define who you want to be mm -hmm. and become and do and mm -hmm. have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm uh, trying. Like the infantry slogan for a young officer. I was an enlisted man for three years, too, before I became an officer. But follow me. Follow me in battle. Buried them. And now it's kind of like follow me home. You know, mm -hmm. follow me home. You followed me once, follow me again and help me help my work help you, help others, help families. Because that's the that's the suicide that I introduced. But his spirit comes back and he uh, some fantastic stuff. I mean, I'm not gonna read the whole play to you, but some no, 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 but that that's yeah amazing and you know, I'm sitting here listening to you. I'm like, well, what if that was your purpose? To experience everything so you could do what you can for others. I'm thinking that that is maybe why I lived, you know, why yeah. I'm still here. And then this fascinating words come through me. It's like, and everybody's talking about, oh, man, that's so good, so good. But I just, you know, I just, and Stephen's got me uh, uh, podcasting and talking. I think tomorrow morning I'm on the radio, so. I just want to get the right people to hear, you know, to maybe have a look at it. I mean, I that, this thing that I wrote it probably less than a year ago, and it's just so timely and prevalent. And then COVID hit us, and there was nothing I could do. Right. But it's so timely and healing and prevalent and visceral and just it. In this time, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. And if you could go back and connect the dots, it it helped you to where you are now. And yeah. your whole life has transformed. Yeah. And you are becoming the best version of you now. Yeah, how about that? I better, like people say, well, I'm going to make you famous. And, you know, yeah, yeah, well, I'm not doing it soon because it might be not. I'd like to be, if I'm going to be famous, I'd like to be famous while I'm alive, you know. Although, you know, some famous people weren't alive when before their fame came, like um, uh, Mozart. Tesla, hello. Van Gogh, yeah. Yeah, Tesla, yeah. So yeah. I wish you the best of success, and I will put this out there because um, it, I think it would touch more. And I know there's a lot of brothers and sisters. I appreciate it. served and are suffering. Maybe you're the spark of light. Yeah. And women, women and men veterans, if you, please just hold your head up. Hold your head. Don't walk around with your head down. Hold your head up. Mm -hmm. Be proud. Well, I know I put some information about um, 
your stuff that you shared with me. So that's there for them to reach out, get your book, uh, and you know more about your plays and all that stuff. Your website, all of that's there for them. Appreciate that. If you, can, if you can refer them to that website, I do have an email address on there. It's it's LT, the LT that I've always used. And my initials, MSM for Michael Stephen Myers, LTMSM at yahoo.com. And my, my webpage is Michael Stephen Myers, L, spade S, spelled S T P H E N M Y E R S, like the guy in the play. It's not M E Y, it's M Y E R S, Michael Stephen Myers.com. And that way I'll try and keep that current. But uh, hopefully, I, I, I just think this belongs in front of so many people and people need it does. To, this is the one that that's I've had them featured in South Africa and Arizona, but they didn't have this. This one's very, very prevalent, very timely to now, especially families, families, you know, people, soldiers, sailors, seals, Marines. I and mean, you know what? I have a woman that is uh, a veteran that has a podcast. I'm going to introduce you to her. There you go. On her show. That'd be great. She's a I'd good minister. She helped me with get into um, broadcasting. Great. She, uh, it's Kia Baker. So it, she's very, it would be an honor and a pleasure to get you two together. And yeah. you guys can share a lot. Uh, very good. I'm sure I will definitely send that information. So I got to text her and say, Hey, I have somebody for your show. Guess what? <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Kimberly. It's been a it, pleasure. It was an honor. And there's one thing that I, that to wrap this up with is, you know, I, there is this thing about this, you know, kneeling, you know, some oh. people take offense oh. to it. Okay. okay. Through history. Good question. I know that they kneeled. Though I've seen soldiers kneeling before their fallen brothers, and 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 it's just a, a thing of respect and honor. And if I could, I would kneel before you <laughs> for all and the others ah, that have you. passed on. Thank I you would so much. kneel. To give that honor, to show my respect. Thank you, Kimberly. That 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 those words and that feeling that you have right now means means the world to me. Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it. It's really well, been an honor. Been an honor talking to you. It's been a heartfelt and very touching. And thank you so much for being on this show. I hope this helps somebody that's watching and listening that has served our country that's suffering. Yeah, and hold that flag high when you're in the service. And when you're out of the service, hold that head high. None of that. Don't do that 10-year drift I did. You hold your head high. You know, society appreciates you. Society appreciates you now. So, I, I do, for sure. Yeah. You always are in my heart. Thank you, Kimberly. You're a, you're a, you're a special gal. Thank Appreciate you. It. And congratulations on your nuptials that are coming. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, Kimberly. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, 
that was very touching and i love michael's message and story and him sharing his his experience of what he's endured and how he's overcome and transformed his life and i hope it helps you especially those that have served i love you guys and you never know who i'm gonna get on my show Do you agree that, you know, it's time that we all wake up and take responsibility, even for our ancestors that did not know any better? I've been waiting patiently to have this kind of conversation. <laughs>